The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Chinese stocks outperform in Asia after the S&P 500 logs its fifth straight week of gains as the trade relief rally continues into the end of the year. The U.S. calls airstrikes against Iran-linked sites in Iraq and Syria successful and warns further military action may be necessary. We continue to demand that the Islamic Republic of Iran act in a way that is consistent with what I laid out back in May of 2018 for what it is that we expect Iran to do so that it can rejoin the community of nations. Tesla starts deliveries of its China-made Model 3 just a year after the electric car maker broke ground on its Shanghai Gigafactory. Nissan reportedly calls for sweeping spending cuts amid falling sales and profit as the automaker reels from a series of executive scandals and troubled relations with the alliance partner Renault. And good morning, everybody. Great to see you there. My name is Mandy Drury, along with Jumana Basetchi. Let's take a look at what happened in the Friday session. Do a little bit of a rewind for you, shall we? We've got here behind me the Dow and the S&P finishing flat with an upside bias. Of course, that never tells the full story, does it? Because year to date, these have been stellar performers. The Dow, year to date, is up about 23%. The S&P is up about 29.3%. The Nasdaq, while it did finish slightly in the red on Friday, is the absolute stellar performer. It has gained by absolutely double digits. It's uh, hitting a record high along with the Dow and the S&P over the past week and uh, up about 35.7% year to date, about 75% since the US election, which of course really does show why Trump is often tooting his horn over the markets. Let's take a look at some of the markets here behind me. We've got, of course, the Asia Pacific map, which is uh, candy colored, which is very much keeping in the Christmas theme, isn't it? You've got a little bit of green and a a little bit of red, especially in my home country of Australia. Talking of which, we have here the S&P ASX 200, uh, which was down by two tenths of a percent. The Nifty 50 uh, also down by the same amount. The Kospi over in South Korea down by three tenths of a percent. And the Hang Seng, which has generally been an underperformer over the past year compared to some of the other Asian counterparts in the North Asian region because of the unrest there. Uh, but the Hang Seng moving to the upside by four tenths of one percent. As for the opening calls, let's throw it forward as opposed to looking back. Always a good idea at the end of the year. Uh, so what, 57 minutes until the market open and it looks like it is going to be a little bit of a soggy start to the trading day out here in the European region. The FTSE 100, Zetradax, Cacarande and the FTSE MIB in Italy called to the downside, Germana. Great to be with Mandy. you. It's a bit of a subdued <laughs> session inside for European markets after that better session for Asia. Now, trade tensions may once again play a major role in global markets this coming year with emerging markets and Europe taking center stage. CNBC makes three predictions for 2020. 
Global stocks rebound, Europe goes east, and China launches a digital currency. Here are three predictions for global markets in 2020. First, investors pivot to emerging markets. U.S. stocks outperformed most international markets in 2019, but strategists are betting that a pickup in global growth will push more investors into a handful of emerging markets that have been unveiling stimulus measures to boost their respective economies. Second, U.S.-Europe tensions will rise over Huawei. Despite warnings from the U.S. that Huawei uses backdoors to spy on customers, European countries will continue to lean on the company for the build-out of 5G broadband. Ignoring Washington's call to ban the Chinese telecom player could create strained relations between the U.S. and the EU. Third, China goes digital. Officials in Beijing have hinted in recent months that its central bank is launching a digital version of its currency, the yuan. While the country is already on its way to becoming a cashless society, a digital currency could dramatically change the way consumers purchase goods, putting more pressure on U.S. regulators to either greenlight Facebook's Libra or explore other currency options that can rival China. Well, those are just some of the predictions for 2020. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs expects an improved U.S. economy, but no added fiscal stimulus in 2020. In an economic research note on the coming year, the investment bank said that the U.S. economy faces a 20% risk of recession, a rate it says is less than most due to the low threat of overheating and fiscal imbalances as the Fed targets 2% inflation and steady interest rates. The note predicts record low unemployment rates and a pickup in business investment. Uh, and now to bring in another perspective going into the new year, Michael Brown, European Portfolio Manager at Martin Curry Investment Management. It's great to have you with us. You're with Good us for morning. the next couple of hours, keeping yes. us company. Happy holidays. Absolutely. Hope you had a nice break. And uh, you're here with us to usher in the new year. Well, yes. Give, give us your insights of to, going into 2020. Mike, I want to start off uh, looking back, uh, yeah. to use Mandy's phrase, <laughs> retroactively and to get to, to, to take in a full stock of some of these stock market moves this year. S&P up 29%, yeah. the Dow up more than 20%, Shanghai up more than 20%. It really is remarkable how much stock markets have performed this year, given the plethora of uncertainty that existed for the most part of this year, isn't it? Yeah, I think... Obviously, a big chunk of that is the bounce back from the big sell-offs that we had in the third and fourth quarter of last year. And I think you've got to sort of kind of balance the two years out, I think, to get a really real sense of it. But overall, on the two years, the world is a better place. It's up a little bit. Um, and that's against a backdrop in 2020, uh, sorry, 2019, of some of the worst economic data that I've seen for a decade. I mean, it really has been an unremitting series of downgrades and bad news right across the board. And the causality of that, I think, is very much really threefold. Yes, tariffs have played a big part of it, but it's not the big issue. The big issue has been a manufacturing recession, the likes of which, in particular in the auto industry, that we frankly haven't seen for a decade and decade and a bit. Mm -hmm. And how the world has coped with that is in part very impressive and in part actually slightly worrying. And, and, and I, would I would swing now to the fact that we're getting close to the end of that particular process. And unless some other part of the economy wants to pick that up, then actually 2020 is going to surprise people on the upside. Do you feel that generally when you talk all the time about recession, as we have done over the past year, yeah. that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy? If there are so many economists saying, oh, I think there's X percent chance of a recession, then you've got companies who think, oh, 
gosh, if there's going to be a recession, I maybe should not be spending at the moment. Maybe I should I not did, be hiring. I was on this programme a year ago saying, I think there's a European recession coming. And frankly, Germany managed to nail it for me. And it was quite good. Mm. But that's not the reaction of the market per se. So mm. I don't think it became a self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecy. I think quite the opposite. Actually, an awful lot of people on Main Street ignored it. And that's really interesting. And yes. I think we've yeah. got to think about why did that happen? Why has this not happened before? You know, in, a, in an era, the last decade, the single most important question has been why have real wages not risen? What's happened to productivity? So why did the person on the street who's been complaining the most about a lack of growth in their real living standards actually ignore all of these signs. But you know, just to bring it back to this year, and you were saying, we started off the conversation talking about mm. the, the number of uncertainties out there, and mm. you said you were warning about the prospects of a recession, yet we managed to skirt a recession yep. everywhere. Even in Germany, we skirted a technical recession mm. just about <laughs> by, by, you know, by the skin of their teeth. Uh, but how much of this is, is really just underpinned by the fact that central banks are there, and central mm. banks have been easing as uh, you know the, the the tool of last resort for all of these economies the Fed they hiked three times a year ago this the, 2019 was a year where they had to reverse all of those yeah. hikes and cut three times ECB very accommodative now Bank of England moving more dovish you see that trend 2019 we've seen a trend away from hawkish central banks dovish central banks and perhaps that's the real reason why stock I markets think, are up I not think the economic financial reason absolutely and, and I think um, we all underestimated the power of the return of central banks. Mm. I mean, there can be no doubt about it. I mean, this time last year where we were at eight, nine, ten basis points on the majority of European bonds, here we are, you know, minus 20 odd. I mean, that to me, you know, does indicate that actually cash has been looking for a home and frankly has been flying around, not really understanding where it was going, but actually just going somewhere. So that absolutely has underpinned it. But I think from an economic point of view, if I take a step back mm -hmm. and say, economically, why have we not had the recession? Well, we flirted it, we skirted it, whichever mm -hmm. way around you want to look at it. What, is, what has happened there? Actually, the man in the street has just quietly kept on spending. The household has quietly mm -hmm. kept on developing in a way that the central banks haven't influenced. And I think perhaps the impact of central bank action from this year will show up more ne next year than it has done so far. But are we getting to the stage of monetary policy impotence, right? <laughs> because yes, they have had our back and, you know, yes, it's been fantastic for asset markets. We just have to take a look at the year-to-date gains in, in the markets around the world, or at least the vast majority of them. But haven't we got to the stage where they're starting, starting to run out of bullets if there was another leg of a downturn? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, what, what do you do next? Well, you have to really get the printing presses out. You have to go down the MMT route and you have yeah. to really do something much more exciting and, and much more unpredictable in terms of its unknown consequences. But, much I mean, more unconventional. We're in the era of unconventional monetary policy. How are, unconventional do you need that to get Unconventional it? has become conventional now, so exactly, That's to your right. point. NERP is normal. Well, yeah. let's just take another step back on that, and one of the great trends for the next decade is going to be the issue of negative interest rates, mm -hmm. extremely, or, or should we say sub-real interest rates. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably a better way of putting it. We are at the moment penalising savers uh, to, to, to benefit borrowers. Right? And we haven't really seen the big impact of that on the savings economies. You know, we haven't really seen, as we look at Germany today, you know, with record levels of employment, with very low unemployment, with actually a pretty well-performing economy in a period which it shouldn't have been, to be honest with you, what is happening to the saver? What is happening to demographic change? Mm -hmm. What is going to be the driver over the next decade here? And I think some of those impacts are going to come out more over the next five to ten years of that transference of wealth. 
and it's the right thing to do. I mean, I wrote a paper a long, long, right. long time ago pointing out this demographic problem. I never yeah. expected it to be answered, this overextension of wealth in a particular group mm -hmm. by negative real interest rates. Well, we'll talk about yes, that in, in, in coming segments. There's a lot to talk about, but I just want to go back to markets here. Yes. How much participation do you think there was overall in this broad stock market performance? Because it feels like the most reluctant rally of all time, <laughs> isn't it? Well, look, look, I mean, you know... Have people had a good year? I, I, to be honest with you, I think... The, it's not just the movement in the market, it's the limited number of stocks that have created that movement. The movements have actually been extremely defensive overall. So, you know, you look at the Nestle's, your LVMH's, you know, it's a few stocks that have driven this particular rally. And that in itself gives you an index problem, perhaps, for next year, where if I'm right that we're going to broaden out here, if I'm right you should be significantly more optimistic about the economic development in 2020 than the numbers are suggesting at this particular moment in time, then actually all of that stuff that is in the long-only portfolios that have performed well this year may well go nowhere. And the indexes, therefore, may not go anywhere either. However, that huge rotation process mm. could make life a lot more interesting for a broader spectrum of investors. And it is noticeable in the last quarter or so mm -hmm. that the smaller medium cap mm -hmm. stocks have mm -hmm. started to pick up the leadership and started to push things forward. Yeah. So yes, on the whole, most people had a good year. Yes, on the whole, most people have, 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 have made money. Yes, on the whole, most people feel a bit better now, certainly, than they did this time last year. But be careful for the rotational mm -hmm. elements that come through in 2020 and how, how your portfolio manager manages that. We'll talk more about that later. Most certainly we'll yeah. get a little bit more micro, but just, just talking more about the macro point mm. of view here, is there the danger, and I get your point completely that, you know, um, while we talk about S&P at a record high, Dow at a record high, if you look a little bit more beneath the surface, there are a number of um, stocks that have absolutely not reached their record yep. highs and have not participated. But is there the danger the man on the street sees on the front page of the newspaper, stock markets record high, and they come in at the top? I mean, we are in an aging bull market. There's only so much further that this bull market can go. We haven't had a correction. We haven't had 10% or more correction in over a year now. Yeah, there's always a danger of that. But then again, we've got to also sit back and say, is the man in the street invested? Have we seen the flows, going back to, to the question mark, of have we seen people participate in this? And I sense we yeah. haven't. I sense there is more, there is significantly more to go. We, we run a big clock about central banks and recessions and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to us that every time that we think that we're going to dip into the wrong side of the coin, the central banks try and pull us back. Now, are mm. they postponing recession or have they actually managed to jump through the worst of it to get you to the other side? And my sense, at least from a European point of view, is it's the latter, mm -hmm. that we've managed to jump through to the other side and we could be in a very different period. In which case, that's the moment the investor comes back to certain assets and mm -hmm. comes back to those assets because they haven't participated. Mm -hmm. Whether that lasts a year or three, all right, or five, I'm not going to give you a prediction for sure. because we are in fairly short mm -hmm. cycle terms. But I do think that people are yet to fully invest into it. Right. It's a pity that they say that often making predictions is a fool's game, considering that this, <laughs> at this time of year, it's all we do is make predictions for the next year. We pull year. our Christmas cracker, we see what's inside it's it, another, and dress the fortune. It's written on the job description. <laughs> yeah. There's only one prediction I'm going to make, and that is in an election year, you can bet your bottom dollar that Donald Trump will want this rally to continue. Well, elections are something else we must talk about. We must, we must. It's on the, it's on the agenda. <laughs>
Okay, Michael Brown is staying with us as our guest host. US Defense Secretary Mark Esper, meantime, has described airstrikes on locations in Iraq and Syria as successful. The attacks were launched on Sunday and targeted five weapons and munitions depots linked to Iran. It is unclear if anyone was killed or injured in the assault. The raid comes after a number of rocket attacks against American-supported coalition bases in recent months. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said Washington took action to protect Americans. The attack that took place against an Iraqi facility threatened uh, American forces. This has been going on now for uh, weeks and weeks and weeks. This wasn't the first set of attacks against this particular Iraqi facility and others where there are American lives at risk and today. Uh, what we did was take a decisive response that makes clear what President Trump has said for uh, months and months and months, which is that we will not stand for the Islamic Republic of Iran to take actions that put American men and women in jeopardy. And U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper did not rule out further military action. The targets we attacked included uh, three targets in western Iraq and two targets in eastern Syria that were either command and control facilities or weapons caches for Kitab Hezbollah. Uh, the uh, strikes were successful. The pilots and, and aircraft returned back to base safely. I would add that in our discussion today with the president, we discussed with him other options that are available. And I would note also that we will take additional actions as necessary to ensure that we act in our own self-defense and we deter further bad behavior from militia groups or from Iran. And we'll talk more about this later on with Michael about the significance. In the meantime, coming up on the show, the UK's departure from the EU finally looks set to take place. But what comes next? We will look ahead after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's very special episode with me and Mandy. It is special. <laughs> yeah, we declare it special. <laughs> we'll be right back. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. It's been months and years of hand-wringing, but finally the UK is on track to leave the EU by January the 31st. After British lawmakers backed UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement bill. The legislation is due to be fully ratified in January, but what comes after that? Sylvia Maro, please look into your crystal ball and fill us in on what you're seeing. So now that we have the withdrawal agreement approved in the House of Commons, we're waiting for European lawmakers to do the same. They will be meeting in the week of January 13 for the first time in 2020, and that could be the moment when they sign off this exit agreement as well. And so then we will see the big Brexit date happening on the 31st of January at 11 p.m. London time. And from that moment onwards, a transition period will begin. Now, that will not change anything for businesses nor citizens until the end of the year at least. 
but the British government will be losing its voting rights in Brussels. European law will still be applicable in the UK's territory, but the British government will also be able to prepare trade deals with other countries to start at the end of, that, of this transition period. And so in this context, we're likely to see European ministers giving a new negotiating mandate to Michel Barnier uh, at the end of February uh, or early March. That's when the EU could tell Michel Barnier, these are the priorities for us in this transition period, and this is what we want from a future relationship with the UK. And, and so after that, the next big date is really in June when a UK-EU summit is expected to happen. And it is at this point that both sides will have to decide whether the transition period will have to be extended beyond 2020. We heard Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that he does not want to do that. And so in this context, European lawmakers have also said that for them, the latest possible date to approve a second deal, the, or the deal on the future relationship, happens in late November. And so that would be the moment when European lawmakers could finalize that deal with the UK in order to have the transition period finishing at the end of the year. But there's of course a big question mark whether the UK and the EU will have enough time to put together future trade arrangements and this future relationship with one another. They will be talking not just about trade, but as well as about regulation on medicines, security, data sharing, and so there's a lot of detail to go through. In order to understand whether 11 months will be enough for both of them, we need to wait for the UK government and the EU to set out clearly their priorities for this transition period. And certainly something that investors are going to be watching very, very closely the next couple of months and as you spelt out over the next year or so. Sylvia Amaro, thank you for breaking us down uh, what we need to watch out for when it comes to Brexit in 2020. Now, meanwhile, the calls for more fiscal stimulus have grown over the course of 2019. But speaking to CNBC earlier this year, Germany's finance minister told CNBC that his government is actually doing enough in the face of an economic downturn and will return to growth next year. Now, Annetta, our colleague in Germany, sat down with Olaf Scholz for an exclusive interview back in October and asked him if Europe's biggest economy is falling into a recession given the global uncertainties which have weighed on Germany's manufacturing sector. The economic situation in Germany is still stable. We have lower growth, but we will have a better growth the next year. This is what we learned from all the forecasts. And we did a lot to make the situation more stable. There is the biggest figure of public investment we can see in the federal budget. If we look at the next 10 years, it will be more than 400 billion of public investment. And we will enlarge this big amount of money with extra investments referring to climate change. This is another 150 billion for the next 10 years. Together, I think we will have a better development in the economy, looking at the development within Germany. And we did also something extra to boost the economy in organizing tax reliefs for low and middle income taxpayers. Uh, we will continue to do so. One of the taxes which will be stopped for most of those paying it is the tax we 
raised since unification of Germany. 90% of the people paying this extra tax will not be enforced to do so anymore and this will be an extra boost for the economy. Is that your way of telling us that um, there's no need for further spending? Because there must be a lot of pressure on you when you meet your colleagues that Germany should use its fiscal space. Uh, the ECB relentlessly is pointing th their fingers towards Germany saying, listen, you need to spend more. Uh, what's your response? As you already heard, we are spending a lot of money for investment, for public investment. We have an expansionary fiscal policy in the last years. The only thing which is different to other countries is that we are not willing to um, have extra debts. That's if there is no need for, and this is the situation. You can have an expansionary fiscal policy and also having a very solid fiscal policy if you look at the budget. What do you tell those people who are telling you uh, you can finance all these extra spending currently at negative interest rates? Why don't you do that? The biggest problem we are facing now is to get all the public money spent. Since there is a very uh, high request for construction, uh, it is very difficult to find the right people to do the, see, the, the things, to find companies to work and things like that. So, as I already said, if you have a situation where there is a request for qualified labor in Germany still, it is very difficult to do something which has an extra effect on the economic development aside to the things we already do. On the other hand, there is one important question that must be understood and discussed I think not just in Germany and Europe, but also in many other places. If you look at the economic situation of those countries that are quite competitive in the world market, you understand that they do a lot for research and development. And if you look at the figures in Germany, we are one of those who are doing the most. Uh, it is just uh, the United States, China and Japan that spend more than Germany. And because of that, I think the biggest lesson is that any country should boost this, the investments in research and development. If the whole European Union, for instance, would invest that much of the GDP for research and development as Germany does, I think this would be the highest spending all over the world, much more than China or the US. And I think this is what we should read. That was Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, speaking to Annette back in October. Let's bring Michael Brown, the European portfolio manager at Martin Curry, back into the conversation. Germany, listening to everything politicians have said over the last couple of months, not exclusively to Olaf Scholz, don't really seem to be giving the impression that there's a fiscal panacea in sight for 2020. Where does that leave the economy, you think? Well, one, will he have a job in uh, six months' time? <laughs> Will the coalition hold together? And I think, no, it's right. really important. Yeah. Okay. This coalition does not look like it's going mm. to hold together for very much longer. Mrs Merkel, who has been this amazing politician for the last decade, one of the very few that's been in power over the whole period of time, you know, she's on her way out. And therefore, the policies that they're proposing at this point in time are on the way out as well. We have to think about what is coming in next. And what is not going not to be the case is the status quo. And the status quo 
beautifully put just then in that interview with Anetta. So but, no one's going to be making any tough decisions if they well, think that it's not going to be implemented anyway, right? There is a massive problem for the German economy over the next five or ten years. A third of its auto industry workers are going to get the sack. Right. A lot of people working in garages are going to get the sack. Mm -hmm. You know, there is an enormous transformation coming here mm -hmm. and they're just not preparing for it. And that coupled with the fact that you've got this massive political fatigue in Germany, is going to produce some really big radical change. So the centre of political disruption in Europe may well be moving from the UK to Germany. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.